Would you pray with me? Father God, we uh, so thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for that holy, amazing, unbelievable night. And tonight, as we open up your word and scriptures, I pray by the power of your spirit that dwells in those of us who call you our savior, that you would speak to us. That again, we would be reminded not just of that night, but Father, what you did for us, not just in the cradle, but on the cross. God, how you sent your son to transform our lives and to transform this world. And on that one night, God, thank you for what you did. But on this night, I pray that you would do something again. You would renew us, you would restore us, and you would prepare our souls and our hearts as we prepare ourselves for Christmas. So we thank you, Jesus. We love you, and it's in your powerful name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to take them and turn to Isaiah chapter uh, 53. Isaiah chapter 53, that's where we're going to be tonight. And uh, I want to share just a few things with you. Uh, This week, as uh, we were really busy at our home, we had uh, three parties uh, at our house with uh, people from the church, uh, some great servants that serve here and give of themselves. And so we had a bunch of them. There's going to be some pictures on the screens, but they came and we had dinner. So we had 32 one night. We had 16 one night. We had 14 the, the other night. So we just had, uh, we've had parties all week long, so I'm tired. But in those parties, it was one great kind of testimony after another of God's grace and his goodness. And we really ask a question, what has God done um, in your life or in your ministry, and what are you excited about him doing? And really, there was a common theme that kept coming up. And it was this, that uh, they came to this church, and God began to minister to their hearts and their lives, and God began to change them. That there were stories of renewal and restoration, that God began to do something in them, and out of God doing something in them, then they now are serving and leading our church. And it was like one story, the next story, all of them had that commonality, that there was a transformation in their hearts and in their lives. And because of God and what he did, they now are serving in this place and leading in this church. And I was so grateful um, that we had these people over because they inspired me and they uh, challenged me. And then I was just reminded of how great this place is because of you, the people. And so thank you for who you are, friends. Thank you for what you do in this place. Thank you for, uh, even last weekend, uh, you should really thank our staff and our facilities crew for all they did at the tree lighting service. You should thank them right now. And uh, Jen and her team, and uh, I don't know if you, if you weren't here, probably smart. I think all of you are. Belinda was here. It was chaos. And uh, we had a great time. But tonight, as we come to this section of Scripture, uh, there's a story of a kindergarten teacher who told everyone to draw a picture of what was important to them. And in the back of the room, this uh, little boy, Johnny, if you were here last week, I think it was the same Johnny that took uh, Jesus' mother and and kidnapped her. But this little boy, Johnny, uh, he started drawing his picture. Everybody else finished and took their picture up to the front, but he didn't. And he was still drawing his picture, and the teacher came down and graciously put his arm around little Johnny and, and said, hey, Johnny, what are you drawing? And he didn't look up, but he just kept on working fervishly. And uh, he just said to her, I'm drawing a picture of God. But Johnny, she said gently, no one knows what God looks like. And little Johnny answered, well, they will when I'm through. (laughs) They will when I'm through. And we might not know what God looks like. 
But let me ask you a question tonight. If you're a follower of Jesus, does anyone see Jesus reflected in and through you? Does anyone see Jesus in, reflected in and through you? In Isaiah chapter 53, tonight we're going to look at this section of Scripture. And you need to understand that the, the Jewish people that, that would have been in this time, they really didn't understand this passage. And, and many of the Jewish people still don't. Not only do they not understand it, they really don't accept it. They weren't sure who it was representing. And was it representing Israel? Was it really representing the Messiah that was to come? They couldn't see how that could be because, you see, their king wasn't going to be one that would suffer, as we talked about last week. He wasn't going to be one that was weak and die a, a criminal's death. No, he was coming in power and strength. He was going to change their current situation. Not only that, this was written in the midst of Israel's impending destruction because of their own sins. And so uh, the nature of Israel's sin at this time, it was so great that something other than the current sacrificial system was needed to be required to make up for all of Israel's transgressions. And so we come to, to Isaiah 53, which we are calling the suffering servant. And it's going to give us this picture of the coming Messiah some 700 years later. And it's going to cover him from cradle really to grave. And tonight you need to understand something. You can't have the cradle without the cross. <laughs> and you really can't have the cross without the cradle. They go hand in hand. But as you listen to this prophecy some 700 years before Jesus was born, I want you just to think about the unbelievable detail that was given. The story that was written out and how 700 years later it came to be. And in these 12 verses, I've broken it into four sections because it's, it's pretty dense and pretty heavy tonight. So there's some surprising contrasts that are in here. But I've broken it into these four sections, and based on how this suffering servant is treated, uh, we might assume some things when we just read it at first glance. But ultimately, we're going to see some contrast in how wrong we would be because things are not as they might seem. So let's start with the first section, chapter 53, verses 1 through 3. I'm calling this section, The Rejection. Verse 1, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. So here this servant is identified, and, and, and I want to give you the two surprising contrasts here. First is this, he is both the Lord himself. Isaiah 51, 9, referred to God as himself. It says the arm of the Lord, which is used in that verse to refer to God himself. And yet, distinct from the Lord, as it says, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, or some of your translations might say like a tender plant as a root out of the dry ground. So he is both the Lord himself, yet he is distinct as his own person. And this suffering servant is being described as the Lord, but yet separate, one who would be tender and one who would be compassionate. 
He is not one who is looking down and filling you with pressure or he's not angry or holding contempt over you. And during all that this servant would go through on his earthly ministry, he was always, always looking to serve those who were around him. And so when Jesus comes upon the earth, it was really, really dry. Rome had been oppressing the people of Israel, and it was dry politically, emotionally, and spiritually. And so Jesus comes as this baby. And you need to understand, there had been no prophecies, no miracles, no hope for almost 400 years. Think about that. And Isaiah wrote these words some 700 years before. So it was dry, it was dark, it was barren. And now this one was going to be revealed upon the dark and the parched land. And he will bring order into disorder and calm into chaos. And he would be the one that we would call our Savior. The second surprising contrast is this. It says there's nothing remarkable about him or his appearance. From a human standpoint, it says he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. And yet this one is the one we would be drawn to as the Savior of the world and the servant of God himself. And this servant would be despised and rejected by all mankind and one who would be familiar with pain. If you have your Bibles, you might want to underline that verse, that he was despised, verse 3, and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering familiar with our pain. See, the God knows, the God who knows you, the God who sees you, is the God that understands you. And I just want to remind you tonight, when you talk or pray to God, you need to know that he relates to you because he understands your pain. Hebrews 4 said it this way, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, verse 14, it says, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So we know now that he was rejected, but why was he rejected? Well, the second part is the reason, verses 4 through 6. The reason is this, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So here the reason of the servant is identified. He took our pain, he bore our sufferings. And there's a surprising contrast in this. Although his suffering would suggest this. That he is being punished by God for his own sin. He is actually being punished by God for our sin. God put on him our iniquity. And it is his punishment now that brings us peace. See this suffering service made our grief his own. And our sorrows as if they were his. And the image there is that, that he loaded them all up. And he carried them on his back so we wouldn't have to. 
And I look, and for all of us in this world that, man, we carry around pain and we carry around grief and sorrows, you need to know that there was this servant named Jesus that carried them already for you. He went to the cross so he could take them from you. But for it to do any good for us, we actually have to release all of our cares upon him. What did he do with this rejection and suffering? What was the result? That's the third one, the result. Verses 7 through 9, it says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. But by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was then assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So here we see the reaction, but the surprise contrast is this. When punished for our sins, he himself did not retaliate. When actually he had every right to do so. When actually he could have sinned himself, but he did not. See, Jesus would not defend himself to put the covering of our sin at jeopardy. In our humanity, I want you to think about it. What, what is the first thing, many times, that we want to do when someone speaks ill of us or when someone afflicts us? What do we want to do? We want to rise up and defend ourselves, don't we? We want to open our mouths and defend our honor. And it comes along and says, Jesus in this moment would not and he did not. He was absorbing our sin, and he was bringing our salvation. There is also a contrast present here between a lamb who, when sacrificed for other people's sin, does not retaliate. Because that usually is the lamb. He doesn't know what's really going on, but this servant knew what was going on, that he was being punished for someone else's sin, and he still didn't open his mouth. And the result was he was cut off from the land and he was given a grave even though he had done no violence and no deceit was found in him. Look at that. He hung with the wicked because he was between two thieves on a cross. And then he was given a grave by this one named Joseph to be buried. And Joseph really was jeopardizing his standing in the community and could have lost his life for doing such an act. But he knew Jesus was a man who didn't deserve what he was receiving. And we look at the details of this prophecy some 700 years later, and look at how remarkable it is that everything that was said came to fruition. And after the result of Jesus dying on a cross, there was what I call the reward. The reward. Verse 10 through 12, it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. Here we see that this servant was not a self 
self-appointed martyr. That this was actually designed and implemented by God himself. That it was God's will to kill his own son. Look at it again. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Two contrasts. Because of his death, others will be made right before God. And though he suffered an excruciating death and endured terrible suffering, he will be rewarded and he will be exalted. I was present in the delivery room when all three of my kids were born. The one I remember the most was Nolan. During Sophie's delivery, the Super Bowl was on, and I don't remember much about the birth except that the Ravens beat the Giants 34-7. And at Ella's birth, I don't remember it at all. Sorry about that, Ella. But the reason I remember Nolan's birth more than any of the other two was because we were trying to get that kid out for 23 hours, and yes, I said we. I was exhausted. And all kidding aside, when we were in that first hour, I started to understand by what I saw in my wife's face and what I began to hear that natural childbirth is not the same as painless childbirth. Madi was fully conscious and doing everything right, but pain and struggle and agony was written all over her face and in that room. And finally, after 23 hours of struggle, which was about 22 hours too long, they did a C-section. And Nolan Matthew Cork was born. And when he came out, I know there was relief, but I looked at him and he just didn't look very, he wasn't a good looking kid at all. Have you ever thought that about your kid? I mean, he was red and he was wrinkled and he was screaming. And I'm like, man, I'm not sure about this little boy. But then after they cleaned him all up and they wrapped him in that tight little blanket and they put him in Mahdi's arms, that pain and struggle washed away from me. I think it was a little longer for her, but... We fell in love with that little boy. And we couldn't imagine our lives without him. I just think that's probably what it could be like when Jesus sees someone come to faith in him. That maybe he considers all the costs and all the pain and all the struggle that he went through to redeem us. All the torment and the shame and the ridicule And I think when someone comes to faith that he just considers it worth it. When we choose to find salvation in and through him. In John chapter 18, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I give it up on my own accord. And he said, for this cause, for your sin, for my sin, and for salvation, I came into this world. You see, he willingly died so that the sin committed from Adam on down to the present day could be laid upon his shoulders. And the payment of our sins would be paid in full. And that reward would be salvation and forgiveness. And it can be yours if you would choose to receive. So this prophecy, some 700 years before Jesus was even born, before he was crucified, some 33 years later after he came to earth, what does it mean for you and for me? Well, he was a servant. That's why he came. So that he could serve. And that's really what he asked of you and what he asked of me. So let me ask you that question again. Does anyone see Jesus reflected in and through you? And tonight you might just ask, well, what does that look like? Well, it looks like 
a life of service that Paul describes in Philippians 2 like this, verse 5. In your relationship with one another, as he's talking to the church in Philippi, hey, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That we should have the same mindset as Christ. And that we should humble ourselves and become a servant, which means that we should live for him and not ourselves. There was a preacher who once says, you can't say, God, your kingdom come until you say, my kingdom go. <laughs> you can't say, God, I, I, I want to honor you with everything that I am while you still just continually serve yourself. No, he comes and he says, hey, for all of us, if Christ is first, then we serve him here in this place. Our life is one that is surrendered in service and honor to our Heavenly Father. It's one of my favorite quotes, and I've used it here before, but Aristides in 137 AD was going to check out the new church. It was called The Way in the book of Acts, and he was going to do that to report back to the emperor Caesar after he saw them. Because the emperor was really concerned about what was going on with these new believers called The Way. And Aristides comes back and he says this about Christians. He said, it is the Christians, O emperor, who have sought and found the truth, for they acknowledge God. They do not keep for themselves the goods entrusted to them. They do not covet what belongs to others. They show love to their neighbors. They do not do to another what they would not wish to have done to themselves. They speak gently to those who oppress them, and in this way they make them their friends. It has become their passion to do good to their enemies. They live in the awareness of their smallness. Every one of them who has anything gives ungrudgingly to the one who has nothing. If they see a traveling stranger, they bring him under their roof. They rejoice over him as over a real brother, for they do not call one another brothers after the flesh, but they know they are brothers in the Spirit and in God. If they hear that one of them is imprisoned or oppressed for the sake of Christ, they take care of all his needs. If possible, they set him free. If anyone among them is poor or comes into want while they themselves have nothing to spare, they fast two or three days for him. In this way, they can supply any poor man with the food he needs. This, O emperor, is the rule of life of the Christians, and this is their manner of life. What a beautiful thing to be said about the Christians, the church. You see, the power of the church becomes visible when common, ordinary people do uncommon things together as they serve the world. That's why when I walked around here last week and I saw just hundreds upon hundreds of boxes of love coming in. And as I walked through the back during and in between the services, you would just see different life groups coming in and serving and people just serving and packing those boxes and getting them ready to go out and to serve those who are less fortunate than we are. And church, right there in the moment, we get to be Christ into this world. 
And Jesus' whole point of coming to the earth was to serve. And his fulfillment of the promise to bring forgiveness of sins through the death of this servant. And you see, the cradle and the cross, they just go hand in hand. And you can't have one without the other. And you can't celebrate Christmas without remembering the cross. There's a book that says, uh, it's entitled, When the Game is Over, It All Goes Back in the Box. And the author writes a story about playing Monopoly with his grandmother. And he said, man, my grandmother was a vicious Monopoly player, and he said I could never beat her. And at the end of every game, she always had everything, and he always had nothing. And then she would get this big grin on her face, and she would say, someday, someday you're going to learn how to play this game. So when this little boy was about 12 or 13, a kid moved in next door, and this dude was incredible at Monopoly. And so he would go over to his house, and he would practice with this kid every day during that summer. He was getting ready to beat his grandma because she was coming in September. And so when, when grandma finally came in September, he ran out of the house, and he gave her a big hug and a kiss, and he said, Grandma, how about a game of Monopoly? And man, grandma's eyes just lit up. <laughs> and she said, let's go. But he was ready for old grandma this time. And he came out of the chute ready to play. And he took his grandmother for all she was worth. He had everything this time and she had nothing. And the author said, this was the greatest day of my life. And after he cleaned her clock, grandma sat back and smiled and said, well, now that you know how to play the game, let me just teach you a little lesson about life. When the game is over, it all goes back in the box. And this little boy said, what? And she said, all that you bought and all that you accumulated and all that you worked so hard for, it just goes back in the box. And she said this, the only thing that matters in life when it's all said and done is who you loved, who loves you, and who you lived your life for. Who you loved, who loves you, and who you lived your life for. Three weeks ago or so on November 16th, my mom passed away and went to be with the Lord. She was 88 years old, and she had suffered the last couple of years with dementia. Last two years, she was unable to communicate except through tears. And I would go and sit with her for a few minutes and hold her hand and she would look at me and cry and she would try and say something to me and you could just see frustration all over her face. And she passed away when I was on our trip to India and I said my goodbyes before I left because I knew she was going to pass. And when I looked her in the eyes and said goodbye, um, I just thanked her. She wasn't perfect, but she loved the Lord, and she loved me, and as I've told you before, I remember her um, praying for me when I'd come up out of the basement in my room when I was a kid, and she was two flights of the stairs up. I remember her playing loudly for me every day, and I don't know if it was just that she was worried about me or that she really, really did love me, but I think it was because she really loved me, and I heard her over and over just pray that I would be someone that would have a heart for God. 
And she prayed it for both of my brothers, and I'm going to guess she prayed it pretty much every day. I don't know how she got three boys that all of us were pastors at one point in our career, but she did. But she was a living example of what it meant to love and serve and live her life for Jesus. And now, she's at peace, and she's whole, and she's so much better. And as scared as she was to leave this earth, because she was, I think now she wouldn't trade where she is for anything. Jesus comes, and he says, look, the only thing that matters is who you love. And who you live for. And who you serve. As I close tonight, I want to read verse 5 and 6 just one more time. And in a minute, we're going to take communion and just be reminded of the gift that was given to all of us. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Do you hear that tonight? We are healed. We, all like sheep, we've gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let me ask you a question. What does that verse have to do with you? Everything. Because he was crushed and he was wounded for you. But what do you do to deserve that verse? Nothing. Except sin. Except fail. Except mess up. You don't deserve it. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all and you are healed because of his amazing love. Think about it. 77 million people estimated have lived on planet earth. And all that sin has been laid upon him. Which means today, if you would simply just choose to believe in this one, Jesus, your sins are covered. How amazing is that? About 10 years ago when I got this gift, I showed it to you. I'm going to show it to you again, but it was a picture, and I don't think my kids were smart enough to do it, so Madi probably did it, but it was a picture of my three kids. And uh, it was put on my desk, and it was made like this, so the kid I was happiest with was supposed to be right side up. (laughs) So if they did something stupid that day or that week, I'd just turn the photo. So they knew who was in a good standing with me. (laughs) Tonight, uh, salvation has nothing to do with you and what you do or don't do. The reason my mom was so scared to leave this earth is because she grew up in a religious system that fed her guilt and condemnation and pain and struggle because she lived thinking she was never good enough to meet her Savior. And if that's you tonight, that's that's a lie straight from the enemy. Because there's nothing that you did that deserves freedom and hope and grace. 
And God's not looking down on you like this picture and when you screw up, he's just going to somebody else. (laughs) He said he bore all of your sins, took everything upon himself because of love. And tonight, some of you just need to accept that gift and then go reflect that gift in this world. See, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Remember the teacher that tells the boy, no one knows what God looks like. And then he said, well, they will when I get through. Isaiah just gave us an amazing picture of your God and your Savior, Jesus Christ, and what he looks like. And I pray that that Savior would be reflected in and through you. A couple things tonight. If, if you're just waiting to get engaged in God's kingdom and, and serve Him, it, just quit waiting. You have gifts. You have talents. You have ways that God can use you that you could never, ever imagine. And as I sat at those three tables, I told our elders were the last table and then the volunteers and their, their spouses. And I just told them, this church doesn't happen without you. God's kingdom doesn't move forward really without you. You have something to offer. So offer it. Get up out of your seat and get engaged in God's kingdom. And I don't know what that looks like for you but there is a place for you. Second thing, there's somebody that you know in your life right now, you can name them just like that, that is really far from God and needs to be here at one of the Christmas Eve services. You have a neighbor, you have a coworker, you have a friend, you have a family member that needs to know and understand who this Jesus is and all they need is an invite. Did you know that they say it's over 70% of people say they would come to church, people who are far from God, if somebody just asks them. So can I just challenge you? Ask. And if they say no, say, that's okay, I'll ask you again. Take one of those kits that we have for you. We're trying to make it as easy as possible to be kind and to go and serve and invite. Just invite somebody and begin to pray that God does something in and through their lives. I have people that I am going to invite this week and next week. I have family flying in from Australia to be with us on Christmas Day, and I am praying that they come to this place because they don't know Jesus. Let's be people that reflect his goodness and his grace. And let's never forget what our Savior did on a cross for our sins and our salvation. So tonight, would you stand with me? And if you didn't receive a communion, the old ushers are going to be around and you can just raise your hand and they'll come and, and give you one. But I'm going to just uh, ask you to bow your heads in prayer and we're going to sing and then I'll come up and lead us in communion as we close. But Father God, uh, thank you. Thank you for uh, this amazing picture. This amazing prophecy that was told 700 years before you were even on the scene. And God, in that, 
we can stand back and know for sure that we can place our trust and our hope in you. So tonight, thank you that um, we simply just need to say in this moment, if there's someone here who has never received the gift of salvation, they just simply say right now, Lord Jesus, I believe. I choose in this moment to believe that you are the Son of God, that you came to earth to save me from my sins. I believe. And God, because this is not about us, it's about you, it really is as simple as that. But you don't want us to stay like we are and who we are. You want us to be transformed into your image. And so, Father, if we pray that prayer, may we understand that we're just beginning a new journey with you, one that is full of grace, one that is full of love, and one that is full of hope. So we thank you. And I just want to pray over our church, God, those who follow you, that they would just um, reflect you. That over these next couple of weeks, God, that you would just um, use them to make your world a better place. That, God, people will see the love that is Jesus in and through them. I pray that they would become great inviters. I pray, God, that, that tonight, that they just thought of someone, that they would begin to pray for them. And then maybe some of them just need to pray for courage just to invite them. So, God, I pray you'll give them courage, and I pray you give them strength. And I pray they would come into this place and sit with them at one of our eight services on this campus. And, God, we just pray over that, that many might come to know you and be saved. And we thank you for the way this church serves around the corner and around the world. We thank you for the way you have used it over the 110 years of its existence. And God, we thank you that we're not done serving you and honoring you. So may Friends Church be a great reflection of you. And tonight as we celebrate and remember and take communion, may we simply just pause in these moments to say thank you. And it is in the powerful, matchless name of Jesus Christ we pray all these things. Amen.